0: you have to make sure that success, that you are successful on your own terms. Because if you're not successful on your own terms, if it looks good to the world but does not feel good in your heart, then it is not success at all. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, damn. When I was like thinking about whether I should leave my job and do the profile, he said, never let others believe in you more than you believe in yourself. And it's like, I, I had done that my entire life. Like I was always looking for external validation. Ooh, what have I changed about my life? Um, okay. So, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These questions. I feel like I'm on Oprah. Uh, <laughs>
1: That's going in the trailer for this episode. <laughs> i'm so excited to be here with you like this is tremendous honor so Uh exciting thank you so much for doing this
0: i'm very excited for round two danny (laughs) god
1: it's we've been and come a long way and now we have a new book out you do hidden genius and i'm so excited to bring this to the world and to let more people know about it because i was going through this last night and it is one of the quickest reads i've been through in a long long time so thank you so much for writing it of course i think a good place to frame this conversation would be with your college assignment Mm. to create a profile on someone why was that an impactful assignment and why did that alter the way you thought about interviewing people in the future
0: Yeah, it was definitely a pivotal moment in my journalism career because um, when I went to the University of Georgia, I was the second that I set foot on campus, I went and like joined the newspaper because I knew that's what I wanted to do. But you don't get to apply to the journalism program until you're like an upperclassman. So I still had like two years of just taking 101 classes before I got into my core journalism classes. So I had two years of writing experience for the newspaper. I thought that I knew how to write an article, a profile, a feature, a news story, a crime story, whatever. So when I got to my journalism class, um, our assignment was find a student of your choosing and profile them and so so i was like this is a piece of cake i wasn't worried at all i was like this is right up my alley so i found the student and i believe it was somebody in the class um, that i chose and then i asked questions they were very timid and not forthcoming with their life story um and i thought they were really boring so so i was like i am not entertained at all So I went to my professor and I was like, listen, still early on in the assignment, can I just switch my profile because I might have chosen accidentally the most boring person in the world. And (laughs) credit to my professor who saw what was going on and he was like, "Um, first of all, (laughs) no. Um, But second of all, he said, no one is inherently boring. They're just boring because you haven't asked the right questions yet. And I was like, "Ah, oh, damn it!" <laughs> so, so that kind of reframed because when I was working for the newspaper, I was interviewing students, but um, I was covering a lot of like the administration. So I was cover, I was talking to the president of the school, the deans, whatever. These people are somewhat media trained, or they know how to give you interesting little quick bits of information. When it's a regular person who is not media trained, they don't they don't think in like leads and storylines and quotes and all this stuff that you're looking for as a reporter. So it taught me, A, like always, always, always give more grace to the people who aren't media trained. They may not know. Uh, Even as a reporter, I always made it very, very clear what I meant when I'm like, we're talking on the record on background off the record, I would define it for the person because I didn't want to like, talk to you, you have never talked to a reporter before, and then you like catch them and you get a great quote, but you totally burn a bridge. Um, Never want to do that to people. So with with this, it it really shaped a lot of the way I in, in a lot of the ways in which I think about profiles in that Every single person is really interesting in some capacity. But if you only ask them generic questions and expect them to entertain you, then you haven't done your job.
1: So the key part to that is to ask questions that light somebody up and help them give their story in an interesting way.
0: And not just that, but also uh, I I heard Hans Zimmer say this. Basically like when you're talking to someone, yes, you're listening to the words they say, but you're also listening for the subtext, the things that they're trying to say, but they don't actually have the vocabulary to say it. And I think like really, really good interviewers pay attention to body language. They pay attention to how a person is telling a story, which portions they choose to minimize or emphasize or kind of like embellish, and then you dig into that.
1: Yeah, and particularly, figuring out what lights someone up. Mm-hmm. How do you get better at that skill?
0: Uh, you just like, I. so every single time that I do an interview, I find that the first 20 to 30 minutes is just like getting to know somebody and feeling comfortable. and they're not going to immediately trust you. Um, so you have to build rapport by sharing something about yourself and then making them feel like, oh, okay, this is a human being. This is not just a reporter trying to get information out of me. Mm. Um, so the, th- the the way that I find what lights somebody up um, is that I always, I think my biggest strength, if I may say so myself, is finding the extraordinary and the very, very mundane. Mm. So people talk uh, about things that are like very mundane or some may consider boring, but I like to hear the things that they repeat and the, the way they see the world and then dig into that and find something extraordinary.
1: What's an example?
0: Hmm. Okay. So I interviewed um, the former CEO of General Electric, Jeff Immelt, and I read his book. I watched a lot of the interviews that he had done before. And He's a very corporate kind of guy like he was the CEO of a massive, massive Fortune 500 company. So it's like before the interview, I was really nervous that I wouldn't be able to have a human moment with him or find something really interesting about him. And then as I was talking to him, this wasn't a planned question, but um, basically uh, Jeff Immelt followed Jack Welch, who was largely considered to be one of the greatest CEOs in history. Whether that's true, I'm not sure, because now more information has come out, but he he's largely considered that shareholder shareholder value went up uh, during his tenure. And then Jeff Immelt came and everything went crashing down. So Jeff was not well liked at all. People, shareholders didn't like him, investors like the press, like nobody liked him at one point. And he had a really rough time. So then he wrote this memoir and he spends an entire chapter talking about his mistakes and trying to give answers to the best of his abilities about every single mistake that he made as CEO. And then when he was talking, uh, he said something like, you know, uh, he said, even though my professional life was so turbulent for so long, I was really lucky that my personal life was really solid. And he said that and moved on. And I was like, oh my God, wait, what? Because I always, always thought that, like, if you're really (laughs) having a hard time professionally, your home life is probably also in shambles. Mm. So, um, So I was like, hold on, Jeff, like, I don't think you get asked this very often. But can I ask you a personal question? He was like, sure. (laughs) And I was like, how did you how are you able to maintain a solid personal life, even in the face of all this chaos um, and people hating you and calling for you to resign, whatever. And he was saying that um, he said, I, I found that even if thousands of people hate you, if one person loves you, that makes all the difference. And I was just like, whoa. (laughs) And I learned that he sort of um, compartmentalized it in a way. But he also um, he's like, when I go home, my kids and my wife don't look at me that way to them. I'm just their dad or I'm their husband. So it's like I this very, very corporate media trained guy had this very human emotion. If you watch the interview, you hear his voice crack. Mm. And I was just like, oh, my God. okay. So it's like Little tiny moments like that may not, you know, in the grand scheme of things, give you so much more information about him. But it does humanize him to a point where like, I get it.
1: Yeah. Well, one thing that I was surprised when I was reading through Hidden Genius was that relationships were one of the first chapters that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Why do relationships lead to somebody's hidden genius?
0: Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, I think relationships are the the bedrock of anything that you do in the world. You can't be a good leader without having good relationships. Uh, You can't be a good boss or a great friend or a good husband or whatever. So, um, So I knew I wanted to include it, but to me, every single time that I've read a book and there's been a chapter or a portion on relationships, it's always really mushy or like, not tangible, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah, you gotta be empathetic, and it's like, but how? <laughs> uh, so this was my like um, answer to the but how, and I included very very practical ways in that you can improve your relationships, and I think relationships lead to your hidden genius because. Um, so I've noticed with myself that when I was even I was I was very very young. Um, I spent a lot of time around adults and i heard a lot of their like relationship issues uh because my parents were in their early 20s uh when i was born so i kind of grew up and a lot of their friends were still young still dating whatever and so i would be like oh sally like that guy's too you're too good for him it's like you're eight um but <laughs> but it's really interesting because um i've always kind of seen the world through the lens of relationships and empathy. And to me, if I didn't have good social skills and an ability to read people well, I don't think I'd be a good interviewer. And I also don't think I'd be a good writer because people wouldn't be able to relate.
1: What was it like to write this book while being a mother?
0: (laughs) Insane. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I gained so much respect for all mothers, (laughs) but especially um, really like young mothers who this is your first time (laughs) uh, having a child and also like it's something creative. So I I talk about this a lot like you are your priorities, right? To me, my priority was always going to be baby number, like baby in first place and Mm. then everything else. But I also didn't want to completely lose myself in just having that one label because I saw very clearly, I think, how much people want to pigeonhole you and put you in one type of category. So when I became a mom, people were like, oh, it's so nice. Like, how is motherhood? Whatever. But but the other question that people asked me that I found really interesting wasn't, you know, like, oh, how's the baby? It was like, so do you have time to write? And I was like, no, because (laughs) when you're not sleeping, you don't think about writing, you think about sleeping. (laughs) So I think I gained a lot of respect for people who A, are trying to parent newborns, but also um, do something creative because I think in order to be creative, you need like a level of A, you need to have slept. (laughs) You can't be stressed (laughs) out. Um, But also you just like need to feel like, um, it, it, it's uh, like you're relaxed to a point to be able to be creative, because in the beginning, it was just like survive. Um, but writing this book, even though I started when she was three months old, it was like, um, it was something that I did for myself. And I never actually thought of people reading it i never thought that like it would be this big book that whatever i just was like this is something i do for myself and even if nobody reads it like at least i learned about the process
1: yeah you raised such an interesting point about creativity being something that almost like happens when your baseline levels are good and you're met like you can't be creative yes. with no sleep right like or you can <laughs> but it, it's a very rare circumstance yeah i've never considered that before w- what other things have you learned about creativity as a result of writing this book.
0: Um, So I I also learned very much how my brain works. Mm. Never, I I always knew, so I write out of order. Um, I've said this before, like I think I usually start either at the end or somewhere in the middle. I never actually know how I want something to start. I don't know why, but I know how, usually know how it will end. And sometimes like I know there's something in the middle I wanna include. Um, But the way that I (laughs) write is I genuinely just like visualize pieces of information, like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And then in my mind, I rearrange them. So I don't do, Outlines, I don't like have things like that. I don't don't know how to do that. The way that I think is like, throw some stuff in a Google Doc, but I don't know where it goes yet. And then I step away, and it was actually really interesting with a baby because I had to step away a lot. Mm. So I couldn't just sit and be like, all right, right. So I would put some stuff in there, then go like put her to sleep. And while I was in like a dark room with her putting her to sleep, in my mind, I'd be like, all right, but like if that's over there, then what else can I put here? And if you read the book, you saw that like a lot of it is just like weaved in, but it's totally different stories that you think won't make sense together, but sometimes somehow they're like stitched together. Um, so that's why it's because I'm thinking about one person and then the longer I let it like sit in my head, I think of somebody else. And I'm like, oh, they're kind of similar. And then I play with that. And then
1: where do you find the connections or draw the connections? Like, how do you go about doing that most effectively?
0: I don't know. But in the book, I talk about how research shows that um Uh, your brain will naturally create connections between two totally disparate and like totally different things given enough time. So if you're thinking about two different things and you step away, your brain will work in the background to make connections between the two. Um, There was was a research study that showed they um, got a bunch of students together and they gave them like Different words and told them to write an essay. It was like parrot and robo and whatever. And like the most creative people somehow found like super interesting ways to merge the two. And I think I've always had that. And I think every human has that. It's just like most of us, when we sit down to write or do something creative, we don't allow the time to put it out there, step away, let it marinate, and then come back to it. I think most of it Most of us try to like brute force, Okay, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write beginning to end, like no getting up from this chair. And that doesn't work for me.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Were there any other particular practices that you found impactful or helpful when you were writing this book?
0: Yeah. Um, So this technique I actually learned from Chef Grant Akitz, who was once considered the most innovative and the cutting edge chef in America. he says that when he steps out into the world he sees the world through like a kaleidoscope of food so he's a chef so you you wouldn't think that like he's inspired by music or museums or art or whatever he's a chef like do food whatever but that's not how he sees the world he goes to a museum he sees a massive you know, painting, and he's like, I wanna eat off of that. Then he takes that idea, goes to the restaurant, is like, I like this painting. How can we make the experience to where, now it's not a tablecloth, now it's just a table, and we create art on it using different sauces and different, like, uh, various foods, Mm -hmm. foods. (laughs) Um, And we draw on the table to make it appear like art so that the diner has the experience of being like, wow, this is a beautiful piece of art. Now I'm going to eat off of it. And then another time he was listening to a song by Rage Against the Machine. And he was like, "Ooh, like this song has so many peaks and valleys and different um, parts to it. How do I incorporate that into the dining experience so that it's not just a dinner people are going to? It's like a story. They're part of a story. So the way he structured the menu is like. It's a tasting menu, so um, so it would be like, okay, you start here and then you go up and then there's a down point in the thing. And like, as, as a diner, you probably don't understand what you're experiencing, but you know that it's kind of like a story. Um, so for me, it was kind of a similar thing. Everywhere I went, <laughs> I saw it through the lens of like, what can I learn from this person? And I found these little nuggets in the most obscure places that I would then weave into the book exactly kind of like the professor example that just came to me one day. I was like, oh my God, remember that? And then I was like, that's really interesting because I've, I always think about this before I interview someone. So it's like, it's, it's not only like going out into the world and looking at it through that kind of lens and how can I use inspiration, but also using your past experiences to bring in to today.
1: Were there any people in particular who were more impactful than others when you were going through the book and were almost like perches on your shoulder. Like I noticed Sarah Blakely came up a couple of different times. I'm like, oh, I think Polina really liked Sarah Blakely. Yeah,
0: so yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Sarah Blakely is kind of the first little crumb of um, of, like uh, insight into why I started the profile. So when I first moved to New York, um, I was working at this startup that was like, what am I doing? Uh, I wasn't making any money. I felt really, really lost. And this was in 2014. Um, So I had graduated college in 2013. I still had no idea what I was doing. So when I would be home in my apartment at night, I would look up stories that I was, I'd be like, I want to study these people. I want to learn from their paths. How, where was like, for example, Sarah Blakely when she was 23? And how did she get to where she is today? So I would like kind of study different people, but only a few resonated. And she was the first one where I was like, whoa, Um, because our mentalities were so similar. And she does such a great job explaining her early thinking in early because you'll find a lot of people who have achieved some sort of success uh they often speak about like now in my mentality now but it's like yeah but who were you when you were 23 like crying on the bathroom floor like that's Mm. not (laughs) you weren't you know thinking of um how can i grow my company and get more uh users so she does a really good job of humanizing the early experience. Um, So that's why I gravitated towards her. And I think her reframing of failure and how she sees it as just um, learning and knowledge and okay, now I need to iterate that that stuck with me. (laughs) And so every step of the way, I always think about that. I'm like, she says something like, um, you know, if I hadn't bombed the LSAT when she wanted to be a trial attorney, then Spanx would never exist. And I'm like, wow, okay. So that means that just because you were set on one thing and it didn't work out, that doesn't mean there's not a different, better path that you might enjoy more.
1: I think I quote Sarah Blakely's dinner table story mm-hmm. like probably once every 10 episodes or 20. And I think I got that from you.
0: Maybe, yeah, <laughs> I quote that too. Every episode I get a chance
1: to. So could you explain that for people yeah, who might yeah, not yeah. know?
0: So she she grew up in um, her dad, every night they would sit at the dinner room table and her dad would make them go around the table and share one failure that they had that day or like one thing they failed at that day. And she was like, you know every time that i didn't share a big fat like juicy failure he'd be genuinely disappointed because he'd be like hmm that means that you didn't try hard enough today so suddenly failure didn't become a thing of like oh you failed it became of like you didn't try hard enough and you didn't take enough risk today uh because her dad knew that like if you reframe failure into taking risks is good, then maybe she'll develop a more entrepreneurial mindset, which she did. And, and you find a way. And I think like find a way is the epitome of like Sarah Blakely.
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful story. <laughs> when you think about being a good parent, what popped up for you when writing this book in terms of figuring out who did it successfully?
0: Um. Well, I think Uh. so. There's there's kind of like a recurring thing theme. And one thing that my parents did really well that I want to replicate is that they always let me try things, even though they probably knew I wouldn't be the best at it. So I tried so many things as a kid, including like drama class and acting school and soccer and like chemistry. <laughs> um, but they they let me try all this stuff because they were like, she will eventually hit on something that she's good at. And she likes. Um, but but it was it, to me, it's really like, um, I think a lot of people have a need for control. And it's really easy to put that on your kids and be like, I know what you're good at. I know your strengths. So I'm going to steer you in that direction. Um, so I learned that, and then the other thing that I learned is basically, Anthony and I talk about this a lot, but like, you can teach your kid all sorts of things. You can tell them a whole bunch of things, like you shouldn't do this, you should do that. This is bad for you, this is good for you. But if you don't teach them to be a good decision maker, Mm it's it, it, it's pointless like you, you haven't done your job in my opinion i think the best thing you can do for another person or a child is teach them to be a good decision maker and in the book um i talk about matt Mullenweg. he said that his mentor told him that and i think this is also a quote by jeff bezos but i don't know where it originates um but that you should make uh reversible decisions quickly and irreversible ones deliberately so it's like you know Uh, getting a tattoo, (laughs) I guess that could be reversible, but having children. Once you decide to have a child, that is an irreversible decision. You will forever be a parent. Mm. So it's like those decisions should be made slowly, deliberately, and knowing that there is no going back. But if it's a reversible decision, you can make it quickly. For example, leaving your job and trying to start a company, you can always go back and get another job, right? So it's like those little ones, If you make them quickly and they end up not working out, you've gotten a ton of information, you've learned a lot than you would have otherwise learned if you just didn't make it.
1: When you decided to leave Fortune, how quickly (laughs) did you make that decision?
0: Well, (laughs) (laughs) so I'm also a person who I'm I'm risk averse. I like to say that like risk tends to find me. Um, I don't choose to find it. But uh, so when I started thinking about it, in January of 2020, mm. and everything I read and everything I watched kind of kept reinforcing, like "oh, see, that's a sign; you should leave your shop." <laughs> um, but I, I don't; I didn't listen to the signs. I was just like, "That's interesting," but like, I need more. I need more I, to to decide. Um, so it took me from January to March, uh, and there were a few things that kind of pushed me over the edge, but it was very much like a back and forth. I I call it the seesaw of misery, where you would wake up and you're like, I'm ready to go, I'm leaving today, I'm starting this today. And then you go to sleep and you're like, are you crazy? There's gonna be a recession, there's gonna, and so it's like constant up and down. Um, But I'm also one of these people where once I make a commitment, I am 100 percent like I don't go back on my decision. It's just getting to the commitment part. That's hard.
1: So what pushed you over the edge? Because a lot of people listening to this might be in the similar position of like, I don't know, should I leave my job? Should I not? I'm in that kind of in between seesaw of misery place. Yes. What do you do to get over the edge?
0: So two things I read, um, I I was I was working on a profile dossier, which are these like deep dives that I do for the newsletter on an individual person. And it happened to be Jim Cook, who is uh, the founder of Samuel Adams Beer. Have you heard of him? Mm -mm. Oh, you'll love this story. Okay, (laughs) It's story time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he So he was in the 80s. He was working at Boston Consulting Group. (laughs) Very, very um, exciting place now. Um, But he was working as a consultant at BCG and he was making two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the 80s, which I did the math. It's like roughly like a million dollars a year uh, in today's dollars. So it was a lot of money. He had a wife, he had kids, he had a house. He was like, I feel really comfortable, but This is kind of boring and I don't feel like this is my life goal or dream or whatever passion to be working at BCG as a consultant. So he his family had um, moved to the US uh, in the late 1800s and he found an old beer recipe in their family attic from his great great grandfather in Germany who made beer. And he was like, what if, even though I have no experience in brewing anything, what if I make an American beer with flavor um, and start like a brewer brewing company? And his dad told him that is the most effing stupid decision I've ever heard. You're making good money. You have a good job. Like, why would you do this and risk it all? Um, And at the time, it's important to note that uh, American beer wasn't good it was very much mocked by people in the 80s and 90s um especially by europeans who said that water is stronger than beer uh than american beer uh and there's a there was a joke that was like oh my god this is can i can i say this it's kind of PG. i'll just say it um (laughs) it was like american beer is like making love in a canoe too freaking close to water. <laughs> so people were like, American beer sucks. So his goal was like, let me make one that doesn't taste like water, that's flavorful. And he ended up creating Samuel Adams beer. Mm. But while in the process of deciding whether to leave his job to do this thing, he um, asked himself one question, and that was, is the decision that I'm about to make scary or dangerous? And he's like, plenty of things in life are scary. So like you're scared to tell your boss, you're scared to tell your parents. Like, what will people think? That's scary, but you get over it in like a day. Dangerous is if I stay here, (laughs) will I look back on my life and be like, damn, I really wish I started that brewing company. And so for him, the answer was, i don't want to be in the dangerous position i'm gonna do the scary thing so he left did it 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 worked out um but for me when i started thinking about that i was like i've been at fortune for five years i've learned so much here but in another five years will i have learned more than if i leave start the profile it fails miserably like which experience would i have learned more from and it's the profile experience even if it's not successful Um, And then the second thing that happened was I read Anna Quinlan's 1999 (laughs) commencement speech where she talks about success. And she says that, she said, you have to make sure that success, that you are successful on your own terms. Because if you're not successful on your own terms, if it looks good to the world, but does not feel good in your heart, then it is not success at all. Mm. And so I was like, damn. (laughs) And I realized that I had been measuring success with all the traditional markers of success, status, wealth, you know, material things. Uh, And yeah, I I was like, "But, but that doesn't make me happy, what makes me happy is the profile. So I kind of decided to change my definition.
1: How has your definition of success changed since writing the book, if at all?
0: It, it hasn't. It stayed the same. Uh, but my definition of success is basically someone who has been through the ups and downs of life um, and ha- has had material success, has failed at it, learned something from it, and then done something else, whether it's pivoted or reinvented themselves or whatever, to do something for themselves that they feel successful in, um, and then have lessons to share with other people. So the people that I chose for this book are very much people like that. They are not traditionally successful people, but they are people whose life paths you will learn from because it's very much like they've gone through the, the thick of it.
1: One thing that I really liked when you started the book was mentioning about hero worship and Mm. envy and how you're highlighting these people not so that other people can envy them or worship them, but instead so that they could take the lessons that those people have learned and apply them to their own lives. Why was that such an important piece to put in the front of the book?
0: Because I think the biggest criticism that I receive when I say that I study successful people is like oh that's just hero worship Mm -hmm. these people are the they're the 1.01 percent like there's a bunch of people who did that who left their jobs whatever who failed Mm -hmm. and i'm like yes but i'm (laughs) that's not what i'm doing i'm not idolizing these people that you read about i'm trying to humanize them so that we can all learn from their missteps and their failures and their whatever because every single person has that I've interviewed so many people, um, you know, Mark Bertolini, who's the co-CEO of Bridgewater, Melinda Gates, like you would think that I'd be, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm enamored with the, these people. But I always know that there's insecurity, there's money problems, there's relationship problems. I still remember when I was reading about people um fa- uh, you know idolizing melinda and bill gates's relationship and i remember still ha- thinking like oh that's dangerous because nobody knows what happens behind closed doors mm. and as we saw things weren't that rosy but it's like if you're the type of person who looks at the outside rapper and and is like wow i feel so unhappy and so not successful i'm not on the right path because i don't have these things You literally don't know what these people are dealing with on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, I think that the more you get exposed to people, the more you are comfortable understanding that everybody is a bunch of problems. Mm -hmm. And it's often that you don't have a sense for the different people and interacting with them. So like what what have you changed about your life as a result of writing this book?
0: Ooh, what have I changed about my life? Um... Okay, so, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> these questions, I feel like I'm on Oprah. Uh, <laughs>
1: That's going in the trailer for this
0: episode. <laughs> um, so with the book, have you, have you do you know who Louis Capaldi is? Mm-mm. He, I didn't either. He has these like massive hits that you've probably heard. They're um, songs that all came out in like 2019 um it was his first album and he hit it. He just like it was the entire album was like hit after hit. And he came out of nowhere. He was in Scotland, just like an average dude. Uh Spotify kind of blew up his one of his songs. Uh they put it on um on their like playlist Discover Weekly Discover or something. Discover Weekly, yeah. Um and he blew up overnight. Like literally overnight success. <laughs> and he um and that really messed with him because then he had to put out a second album and he was like oh my god i feel all this pressure to the point where he developed um uh like a like a tick uh, his sh- a shoulder shrug he was just he felt a pressure that nobody's ever felt in his mind um so i didn't feel that pressure because this is my first book and i honestly just <laughs> wrote it as if like nobody was going to read it. I wrote it for myself and I I learned through it. I was, you know, doing research and whatever, but I myself learned. So there was no expectation of me. People didn't even know I was writing a book until I announced it. Uh, so I what I learned is that pressure is like it's anticipatory. Hmm. So I feel a lot of pressure, for example, when Um, I have to give a speech or I have to do a podcast interview and I'm like "Ooh, what if it's not as good as the last one I did or what if and I and I spiral down these things and then you realize that until you sit down and do the work until you actually prepare is it that your brain reminds itself like I've done this before and I was okay and it was good I think the the anticipation of what if it's not good Lewis in the documentary you see him only overcome his imposter syndrome once he sat down and started writing songs, because he 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 wasn't doing the work. He was like, Well, what if it's not good enough? What if you know, people like this, but I want to write that. And it's just like, once he sat down and started writing, he reminded himself that he is good. That's why the first album did hit. It's like he has the skills, but your brain keeps forgetting that. And you're like, Oh my god, I'm a one hit wonder.
1: So what do you change?
0: what did I change or what did I, oh, well, so what I, yeah, what I changed was that, like, for example, I have to give a speech next week and I'm really worried about it. I, contrary to popular belief, I don't like being the center of attention when, like, podcast interviews are fine because it's both of us, Mm. but when it's just me talking to people, it's like, well, so I was really, really, really nervous. And then when I sat down and started writing the speech, I was like, oh, okay, like, I, this is good. Mm. So I think, like, what i've changed is honestly just the mindset of you are not allowed to worry until you sit down and start and then if it's not good then you can worry but like you you can kind of prove to yourself um that it's pointless to worry
1: that makes sense (laughs) well i think that a lot of the future anticipatory fear comes from the wanting and the clinging to have an ideal outcome instead of saying i don't know yes and a lot of writing allows you to create the ideal outcome because you're reading it before the reader will read it. Mm-hmm. So it will it gives you a sense of peace because you have control. Mm-hmm. But a podcast or a speech, there's a lot more uncertainty that occurs in a conversation. That's very true. And so becoming at peace with I don't know, I don't know how the future will land, mm-hmm. I don't know what's gonna happen makes you more at ease mm-hmm. and allows you to attack whatever Do you it is. deal with that? No, oh. <laughs> I don't because I meditate a lot and I know that each moment is perfect just the way it is. Huh? And so when you have that peace, it gives you a sense of like, oh, I said something stupid. That's OK. Mm-hmm. That's part of the process of whatever it is I'm doing. So.
0: That's awesome. That's great. Meditation, guys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so along those lines, what has given you more peace as you've written more and built your career?
0: okay, this is really stupid, but the thing that I always think about is like, it's not that serious. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm the type of person that, if there's like one big struggle in my life, it's that I like, I worry, but I don't just worry like normal people where it's like, ooh, that's a worry, can't do anything about it, let me move on, I'm like, oh my God, there's nothing I can control about it. Let me figure out a way to control it. <laughs>
1: so you're on so, the person on a plane who's like, let me control this plane, figure <laughs> out how to, how to land it when you have no plane experience or basically. flying.
0: Well, yeah. no, like I just, it's not even that I try to find things to control. It's that like I ruminate. Like I try to do different like thought experiments of like, okay, but if it works out this way, what am I going to do? And if it works out this way, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And I think I learned this lesson in a really big way when, I was making a pro and con list <laughs> before I left Fortune to work on the profile full time, and on my con list were all the risks that I thought could happen in the world, and I had a solution for like every one of them how I was going to navigate it. Um, and there, it was like it was stupid stuff, but like one of the big ones that I was really nervous about was um, we're at the tail end of a ten-year cycle. There's people are saying like there might be a recession. What if there's a recession? I had just quit my job, whatever, and then like. I gave Fortune three weeks notice and in those three weeks, the entire world fell apart in a way that I had not predicted, which was the global pandemic uh, nobody had predicted. So it's like sometimes I think like people like me, you plan, you you try to figure things out and then you get like smacked across the face with something you did not foresee. And I constantly try to remind myself it's not that serious. Like unless it's truly, truly like a life or death situation, you will be okay. And in the book, um, there's a chapter on uncertainty and risk. And I give examples of people like an astronaut, um, a a freediver, a war photographer, people like that who truly their lives, one small misstep could cost you your life. Mm. And it's like, there's a reason I chose to highlight those people. It's to remind the reader that, nothing is that serious. Like you're probably not going to be in such a high stakes situation where it's life or death.
1: Where do you think you picked up the need to control everything from?
0: <laughs> um, probably because, I can I can tell you exactly what, <laughs> probably because, um, so when we moved from Bulgaria to the US, I was eight and I went to school and I couldn't, there was nothing in my life I had control over. It was new language, no friends, completely new environment. Like there was so much getting used to that your brain's just kind of like, I'm totally, there's too much information and I don't know how to process it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in the same year, like my parents got divorced. So it was like a lot of things I didn't control. So I always told myself like, well when i grow up like i will have all my ducks in a row and I'll, I'll i'll be able to see all the like what's lurking behind the corner um and i think that that's probably one of the reasons too that i'm drawn to people who have such messy stories mm. <laughs> is because I try to understand like wow you were in a crazy impossible seeming situation how did you get out of that and that's the most important and interesting part to me it's like the like untangling of this really crazy situation and you got on the other side and you're okay
1: how have you gone about untangling that
0: writing yeah, yeah like i I writing I, I told this to somebody recently but like For me to if I have an unresolved issue in my life, I don't feel like it's resolved until I write it down. But most people are like, oh, have a journal, whatever, like write it in that. But to me, it's like not resolved until I not only write it down, but also write it in public, Mm. because it makes me when when people write back and they're like, I went through something similar. It makes me feel like not as alone in that. And, and it makes me more at peace with whatever happened. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, OK. <laughs> because if other
1: people deal with a similar situation and reflect back to your own level of consciousness, then it's like, wow, someone else is dealing with this and I'm less alone in that situation.
0: Yeah. Uh, Amaryllis Fox, who's a, a former CIA agent, she said that like there's a real magic in seeing yourself and someone else Mm. and i think that that's what like i'm sure that's part of why you really like interviewing people it's like you're you're able to connect on these tiny things where you thought you may not have anything in common with this person and you're like wow we're kind of all the same like dealing with the same types of crap
1: yeah absolutely one thing that we're all going to deal with in in this lifetime is suffering Mm -hmm. and what have you learned from this book about how people best deal with suffering
0: yeah i mean In some of these, uh, in the mental toughness chapter, I chose some pretty extreme examples of people who have undergone really severe forms of um, suffering, but one that sticks out is uh, Edith Eva Eager, and she was 16 when the Holocaust happened. Uh, She she was on a train to Auschwitz um, with her sister and her mom, and her mom said, remember that no matter what gets taken from you, uh, you were in charge of putting, uh, you you were in charge of what you put into your own brain. Mm. And she always remembered that like, okay, so literally they can take everything, but they cannot stop me from thinking what I wanna think. Um, I think that's probably one of the most important things we have as a human being. Um, But also she said something that I think about a lot because I think we kind of live in a culture of victimhood. Mm. Is this gonna get me canceled? Ah, shit. <laughs> also going in the trailer. <laughs> God, could you imagine? No. So, okay, <laughs> here's my theory. No, this is not my theory, this is Edith's theory. But she lived through some really, really, really rough times, something most of us probably cannot even imagine. Um, so she said that there's a difference between victimization and victimhood. Mm. She's like, victimization is going to happen to everybody. Everybody's going to be victimized in some way. She says that victimization is the neighborhood bully, the spouse that hits, the boss that yells. Like These are all instances of you being victimized in some way. But victimhood, she's like, is not external, it comes from the inside. So it's like you feeling like you're the victim in every single instance, or not taking any sort of responsibility when you're at fault for somebody else's victimization. Um, and and she says, that's dangerous because you, you don't come uh, at it from a place of strength, you come at it as more defensive, you're on the defense already. Um, and and she says that goes back to what her mom told her it's like you were in charge of what you put into your brain mm-hmm. so if you're constantly looking at the world through a lens of how am i being victimized and i can't do anything about it you kind of like let go of your will as a human being whereas like to survive the holocaust like you need a level of mental resilience that most people don't have. And and she did, you know, and she kept her mind really busy with daydreaming about things, how she was going to get out and all this stuff that if you had cho- chosen to put something else in your brain other than that and only focused on the victimization you received on a daily basis, it's a recipe for disaster.
1: Yeah, there's something really important about taking ownership of your circumstance, and mm-hmm. being able to separate the circumstance that's happening from yourself. And that's what I believe the best people who survive those situations can do. Yeah, you. you uh, so much of what you do is based on who you listen to and who you follow and what things you're putting into your mm-hmm. mind and brain. How do you go about choosing which sources to look for and find?
0: Yeah, so... Um in one of the chapters I talk about the idea of a content diet and it's that basically um, we all pay attention to you know what we eat and what our diet is ma- made up of. But few of us actually take the time to be like, I need a personal content strategy, otherwise I'm just going to end up consuming a lot of junk content that will crowd my brain and not actually help me. Um, so what I did and the way I realized this is I was at one point watching a lot of reality television and it was just like a lot of like trashy, um, what are they called like romance reality TV? I don't know, whatever. It was like love is blind and like The Bachelor and whatever. And it's not to say that a small portion of your content diet could be that, but it's like when it makes up the bulk of it. The way you end up seeing the world kind of like grant ackett's and through the kaleidoscope of food you end up seeing the world through a lens of like broken relationships mm-hmm. or who's trying to screw me over or who doesn't trust me or did i say something that it's just like you end up overthinking things that don't actually matter that much um instead if you start reading harder material and like more meaningful things that will help you in your day-to-day life you end up being a more well-rounded person versus just consuming one type of content and not challenging yourself to see what other people may be reading or the viewpoints they may have.
1: Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Do you have any particular mantras or affirmations you use in order to create the best reality for yourself? Mm. And it's okay if not.
0: Well, uh, I do have one, although it came from my husband and I've like internalized it. He said, um, so when I was like thinking about whether I should leave my job and do the profile, he said, never let others believe in you more than you believe in yourself. And it's like, I, I had done that my entire life. Like I was always looking for external validation. Um, Oprah actually recently, no, not recently, she said something uh, that I read and um, she said that the universal thing that she's learned from interviewing so many people is that no matter who's sitting across from her, it could be Barack Obama, Beyonce, like anybody, name, name that she's interviewed them all. Um, she's learned that at the end of every interview, they always get up and say, was that okay? And it's like, you're Beyonce, of course it was okay. (laughs) But I think like people just naturally need that external validation. Um, And I've learned that if you don't believe in yourself, others won't really see that either and again oprah says actually fun fact i watched an interview that you did and somebody said thank you danny for recommending this um oprah book to me so then i looked it up and i bought all the oprah books and this is from one of them she said when you undervalue uh when you undervalue what you do people will undervalue who you are Mm -hmm. and it's just like when you know when you actively think about that you're like i will never let anybody else believe in me more than i believe in myself
1: it's something that comes up the book is what i know for sure by oprah so link down below
0: there's another one too it's so good they're both so good
1: Mm, i don't know but i'll find it and link it down below one thing that comes up and that i i've realized is like i am so much more likely to have somebody on the podcast if they put out content or put out a business under their own name mm. versus do it anonymously because subtly it points to the fact that they believe in themselves enough to own their own opinions mm-hmm. and that is what oprah is getting at the people who believe in themselves to that level are also the people that i want on the podcast and the people who are valuing themselves the right way mm-hmm. because some part of them feels like i can hide behind this corporation or i can hide behind this fake account name to put my opinions out. But that's not really the core of their being. And the people who are willing to step into the arena are the people who I wanna bring on the show. Mm -hmm. It's time and time again I've noticed that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the arena is like terrifying, but there are those people and I think they're very rare. And I used to be one of the people, you know, admittedly, Mm -hmm. that used to hide behind a title or an organization. Like, I felt so much more comfortable having Fortune Magazine behind me than if it was just me, you know what I mean? Because I was like, it demands like respect, it has a history, it mm-hmm. has whatever. Um, and it's just like you learn that actually there is no substitute for the genuine relationships you make with people. And I found that after I left Fortune and I was emailing people from my personal name, an uh, email, They maybe they didn't want to come on the show to be interviewed but they did always respond and i always found that like okay i've built enough of a connection with this person that they do feel the need to like respond to me even if my email doesn't end with at fortune.com
1: but it's sad that you needed to or believe that you needed oh the validation of a company mm-hmm. in order to feel worthy yourself totally what would you say to people who are in that position now
0: tie your identity to your own name. (laughs) And um, this is like, basically, I learned this when I graduated from college and a lot of people had inflated my ego telling me that, you know, you've worked at the college paper, you've interned at all these amazing places, you will have no problem graduating and getting a job in journalism, exactly what you want. And I was like, oh, my God, this feels like Christmas. Okay, so exactly what I want is I want to be a higher education reporter and a very large news. Like, what are you thinking? This is this is 2013 (laughs) where people are getting laid off. So um, so no, nobody hired me. Um, But I learned that up until that point, going through the educational system, um, whether you like it or not, you have a label and that label may just be student, but it could also be things that you seek out for yourself. It could be class president. It could be newspaper editor in chief, like fraternity, whatever. It's like those things um, are labels that you voluntarily like choose and attach to yourself. And I urge the, the listeners right now to ask themselves, like, if you think you're immune to this, um, if you're at a party and somebody asks you, so what do you do? you will answer with your most impressive identity Mm -hmm. and so like what is that for you and if it's not something that you created that you tied your own name to then maybe it's time to like reevaluate what you do because if it's something external that could be taken away from you if you're somebody's wife if you're somebody's employee or whatever literally one split second you lose that title and then you don't know who you are Again, Oprah, oh, my God, um, said that basically if you could lose it in the blink of a board meeting, that's that's not a good um, identity to tie yourself around. Because in one board meeting, you could go from a CEO of Fortune 500 company to just anybody on the street. And I think that's why a lot of people end up having these like midlife crises or in my case, quarter life crisis, because I was like, oh my God, I up until this point, I had all these labels and now I graduated with no job, so who the hell am I? And that's why when I was at Fortune, I realized I was going down this path again, where I was like, "Um, I'm a a writer and editor and whatever, and like people respect that and they like the newsletter I write. So then I was like, stop. (laughs) You gotta start something that's only for you. doesn't have to make money. It doesn't have to do any of these things. But I'm going to start it for the sole reason that I enjoy it. And I still remember when I was getting permission to start the profile, because technically when you're working in a publication, you can't start something else on the side that's competitive, which I was trying to explain it wouldn't be competitive. Um, But but when I was pitching this to my editor to let me do it, um, he said, like, but why? Like, why would you do this? And I was like, just because I want to like just because like I find enjoyment in finding in reading long form profiles of people. It's super niche, super specific, random, but like that's what I like.
1: How do you how did you get clearance for that?
0: <laughs> I mean <laughs> I I made my so my pitch was basically it's not competitive because I'm not going to be interviewing people. I'm not going to be writing anything original. It's just curation Mm. of profiles. And sometimes I'll include profiles that are in Fortune magazine. So actually I'm helping and all this stuff. Um, And also, I don't think anybody thought it would be big. At the time, a lot of people had personal newsletters that had like 50 people on them. So I think they were more like, why would you do this? It's a lot of work for not a lot of payoff. But to me, I, I also didn't think it would be big. I just wanted to do it because like I wanted to do it. Um, and and then when I left Fortune, ultimately part of my um, consideration and my decision was, OK, but once I leave, I can interview people. I can write original content like I can do all this stuff I've been wanting to do, but couldn't and felt limited. And And that's what happened.
1: Makes sense. One thing that I think a lot of people might overlook when looking at your story is the level of commitment you had to publishing and the cadence with which you put out new issues of the profile mm-hmm. and also the commitment required to write a book while having a child It's like commitment and discipline is something that I think is a superpower of yours and that yeah. probably a lot of people don't think about or discuss when looking at your story. So yeah. what, what do you think it is about those two attributes, commitment and discipline, that have allowed you to be so forthright in saying you're going to do something and actually following through?
0: Yeah, I feel this like weird sense of accountability when I do something in public, Mm. when I'm writing for myself, you know, whatever. But like once you're sending something out, there was one point when I was writing the profile and I was writing term sheet, which was Fortune's newsletter, which was daily. Mm. So I was writing the daily newsletter and then I was publishing mine on Sunday. So the only day I wasn't writing and sending something to people was on Saturday. So it was like every single day, like sick, not sick, like you're doing it. Um, But I like I don't know, like, I genuinely like the accountability. And I also don't have that thing where most people have that is, um, I want this to be perfect before I put it out into the world. I don't have that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, whatever, like, if, if people don't like it, they'll tell me and I'll, I'll do better next time. But I'm never stopped because of like perfection. Because also what is perfection to to me, the first edition of the profile was perfect. And now I look back and I'm like, whoa, let's erase that from the internet. <laughs> uh, but But um, but also I've learned that um, consistency plus time equals trust. And it's like in a relationship, a personal one, a business one, uh, a newsletter one. It's a relationship between you and a reader or you and another person. So if I'm somebody who makes this these big, grand like commitments to you and then I don't deliver, Over a long period of time, I keep breaking my promises that trust is going to deteriorate. And I was hyper aware of that. So I was like, "Okay, I'm going to send this newsletter out every single Sunday and now with the profile dossier every Wednesday. So there's it's two a week. Um, But I haven't missed a Sunday since February of 2017, which is crazy because a lot of stuff, good and bad, has happened in my life, um, including like my daughter was born. Uh, But I obviously like it's not that I'm a workaholic and that this is all I do no matter what and I just like you know forget about other things it's that sometimes like I know things will come up so I've worked ahead and I have a bank of things that like in case something happens here's something I can send on Sunday maybe it's not perfect or it's not the standard profile but it'll be something that keeps the consistency so that if you signed up on Saturday, you're going to get it on Sunday. And then I, I I, mean, honestly, like every time that I sign up for a newsletter and then I don't get it. And then two months later, they're like, I'm back from vacation. And I'm like, oh, damn it. Like, I forgot I signed up for this unsubscribe, you know. So it's like the consistency treats your readers with respect.
1: What other attributes do you think have allowed you massive success in the sense of feeling like you have won this game of like being able to write on the Internet and do it? Because there's a lot of people listening who Wait, being
0: right on the Internet,
1: <clears throat> writing on the oh, internet. writing, I yeah. was like,
0: I am not right on the Internet.
1: <laughs> when there's a lot of people listening to this who are in their first year or mm-hmm. their second year of writing on the Internet mm-hmm. and they want to be right on the Internet. And so what what advice would you have for them as a way to give them a push in the direction to be able to do this as a full-time career?
0: Yeah, so Kat Cole says this. She said, anytime somebody criticizes you, uh, the first time, just assume they're right. Like your first instinct Mm -hmm. should be like, I assume you are right and you have a point. This is the hardest thing as a human being to do because writing on the internet is terrifying. Like there's all sorts of people you will not believe. Like even, so (laughs) uh, when I first started doing like videos on the internet people were just like oh i don't like your jawline and i'm like great well i can't change that so thank you i appreciate it but for me writing is even more personal it's Mm -hmm. like it's like this is like my soul you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so it's like when people criticize that you're you feel it's it's a jarring feeling but i think if you follow cat's advice which is the first when you get criticized just assume they're right and like what can you do with that information even if you think it's delivered in a way that's harsh or unfair or whatever if you're like maybe there's a kernel of truth in here then you'll get better because because you're 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 writing this and you're sending it to people these people read your work every day they probably have some insight into you know like they're like I don't like this or I do like this so when i first started sending the profile um i didn't i couldn't I didn't know really what my voice was. So because I wrote so professionally for Fortune, I was like, this needs to be super like personal and fun. And I wrote in ways that I look back and I'm like, I don't even I don't even talk like that. Like, why would I write like that? Mm-hmm. Um, it was very kind of juvenile and um, unserious. Is that a word, not serious? <laughs> um, so, and, and I would make jokes that were like, eh. But I thought they were funny at the time because I was also 25 or whatever. Um, so, so then I got so much feedback the first time it was like, Paulina, like, I really like the profiles you share, but I don't like the tone or I don't like the whatever. And I'm like, what do you know about tone? I'm young and fun and hip. Uh, but then like, I got that enough where I was like, interesting okay maybe i should professionalize in some ways like how does this come off to people and i genuinely asked people and they were honest in their feedback but um writing on the internet has definitely helped me develop thicker skin and now there's very few things somebody could say about my writing that i would be genuinely offended by
1: and so the advice for new writers is to follow the criticism and to actually lean into it and because there might be a kernel of truth in there
0: yes and exactly and like if you notice there's a reason that i addressed hero worship in the introduction of the book i'm like i know what you got like i know what you're gonna say that i'm doing that you don't like or that and and i'm here to like actively like look you in the eye and directly address it there's nothing more disarming than directly addressing your critics Mm.
1: that's powerful Mm -hmm. what part of the book do you think is going to be the most overlooked or that part of the book that people might not appreciate upon first glance.
0: Ooh. I mean, I hope they look through the whole book. I hope there's no overlooking. <laughs> um <laughs> So, <clears throat> there's a chapter On clarifying your thinking, where I weaved in some really like crazy, unconventional things, but I hope it makes sense to people. Um, I talk about cults (laughs) and like branding rituals, and then I talk about tribes and like how we're all kind of actually in ideological cults. Mm. Uh, We just maybe don't realize it. I think that part of the book, people will probably kind of say like you know it is i believe what i believe but i hope that there's like a line in there that actually makes you question like why do i believe what i believe because i in writing that chapter i got to review a lot of my beliefs um because you end up realizing that a lot of the things that you believe you've never have gone unchecked Mm. so a lot of the i realized this actually when i was in college but um a lot of the things that I believed were because I had just heard my parents say something and just taken it for a, as a fact. You know, I never was like, I never questioned it. Why would I ever do that? It wasn't until somebody else in a safe environment was like, that's kind of messed up. Like, why Why would you think that? And I'm like, I don't know. And so then you start thinking of like, where did I, I acquire that belief? Um, I think I think Elon Musk said something like, you need a better f- mental firewall because a lot of the beliefs you have downloaded from other people without even knowing it.
1: What What's an example of that?
0: Of my, of my beliefs? Yeah. Oh man.
1: Because a lot of times when we're in the in the bubble of our own world yeah. and we're inside the walls of a, a water bottle, mm-hmm. it's, it's impossible to tell that we're actually there.
0: That's true. Okay. I used to think that this is a big one. uh, I used to think that if you're a writer, you're a writer. You couldn't be. It was impossible to also be an entrepreneur, to also be good with money, to also understand marketing Mm. and to, you know, all this stuff. I was always told in college, in high school, all the time, that if you're a writer, you will never make money and you just have to be at peace with that. Mm. And you are a writer like that is how you think. And I never like really questioned that until Substack came around. And I was like, hold on, you mean to tell me that I can write on the internet whatever I want and there are people who are willing to support me financially to do what I love. And I'm like, I will never get mad at anybody for writing and making money like that is just because it goes in the face of everything that people believe that you can only be one type of person or you have one type of identity and not be good at other things. I think you can be very entrepreneurial as a writer is just if you've never been exposed to it, you don't know how.
1: Yeah, it's like oftentimes it's in that situation, it sounds like it was like an external force that propelled mm-hmm. you and opened your eyes. And there's also the idea of not being tied to your identity or tied to an identity of this specific person does this specific yes. thing,
0: yeah. And that's this. If I could, if I could wave a magic wand, <laughs> um, it's that society loves boxes, mm. and I think that the more experiences that you have, and the more types of people you surround yourself with, actually, when you think about a content diet, I'm not just thinking about like what do I read and what do I listen to. It's it's who do I surround myself with, because if you're surrounding yourself with one type of person then you end up believing one type of thing and you don't see the other side. Um, I always say that like I was born in Bulgaria, we came to the United States and we moved to Atlanta, Georgia and then from there I moved to New York City. So it's like I've seen it all, I've heard it all, I've seen different types of people, different types of beliefs and I understand why. And I think the division that we're seeing in this country today, it's because a lot of people don't understand why. And it's like, you're not curious enough. You're not like, wait, why do you believe that? And I think because um, Tara Westover makes a really good point. Uh, She, you know, was raised in a really isolated environment. The first time she set foot in college was at 18. And she said that she realized she held like sexist homophobic misogynistic beliefs but it wasn't until she was in a classroom where she expressed them where people got to question it but it wasn't like a judgmental thing it was just like a wait let me understand why you think this this is really bizarre that she was able to like work through it and i think a lot of times people just want to be like, you're this type of person. I'm not going to listen to you or you voted this way. I'm not going to listen to you. Um, So I think that I want people to know if just because you're a mother doesn't mean you can't be an entrepreneur, just because you're a writer doesn't mean you can't be an entrepreneur or like whatever you want to do. There's so many different types of ways to live that like don't let, others like stick you in like that little box.
1: Yeah, no, it sounds like it's coming from the experience of living in those boxes mm-hmm. and breaking free that gives you such passion in, in delivering the message.
0: And and also because I think my entire life up until this day, I still feel like an outsider. Hmm. Like I don't feel um, as part of a group anywhere. Is that weird?
1: <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. I. How, how has that helped you navigate?
0: Because it never, I'm, I continue to stay curious about people because I never feel like I fully understand them. Mm. So even you would think, oh, Paulina, you're from Bulgaria. You grew up there, you went to first and second grade and your entire family's still there. That's where you feel at home. But actually when I go back, I'm often like, wait, I feel really American right now. And then when I'm here, I'm just like, <gasps> I don't know, like I see the world through all these other things and like you guys are only seeing it this way. So I always feel like I'm on the outside looking in, but that's actually helped me because I'm trying to better understand the people.
1: Well, the book is a manifestation of that and all of the ways in which you've gone from feeling like an outsider to give your perspective on the world in a more uh, objective and nuanced way. So thank you so much for writing it. It's great. Thank you, Danny. Thank you so much for being here. I like to end these podcasts with a challenge. A challenge points to the place you believe somebody should take this conversation and actually do something with it. So other than read Hidden Genius, which I will say is Mm -hmm. my challenge, what should people do from this conversation and actually take an action from it?
0: So ask yourself the question, what is an area in my life where I can bet on myself? And what is something that I can create today that is meaningful, that I only do for myself.
1: Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. All the links down below. Appreciate you tremendously. Thank you.
0: This was awesome.